Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Jenny Ma, senior attorney with the Center for Reproductive Rights, who talks about the Supreme Court's majority conservative justices, who appear ready to overturn Roe v. Wade and a woman's right to abortion. Kay Tillo, chair of the group Kentuckians for Single-Payer Healthcare, who warns that a Trump-era program being continued under the Biden administration threatens the future privatization of Medicare. And Suyapa Portillo-Vieda, associate professor of Latinx studies, who discusses the victory of progressive candidate Chamorro Castro in the November 28th Honduras presidential election. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Days after Sudan's military overthrew the nation's civilian government on October 25th, World Food Program Executive Director David Beasley's flight to Sudan's capital Khartoum was abruptly canceled. Beasley's goal was to negotiate a settlement between deposed Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak and military coup leaders. However, the former Republican governor of South Carolina's trip was canceled by the United Nations Special Representative for Sudan because it had not been coordinated with regional powers. The canceled trip, according to Foreign Policy magazine, reflected the U.N. leadership's unhappiness with Beasley and his diplomatic freelancing. Beasley's proposed mission undermined the Biden administration's diplomatic efforts and also ran counter to demands from Sudan's protest movement leaders, who have been calling for restoring civilian rule before negotiations with the military occur, and to exclude Sudan's coup leaders from participating in a future government. Several diplomats familiar with the situation expressed concern that Beasley and his staff's activities had the potential to weaken the pressure campaign, emboldening Sudan's military to believe it can get a better deal working through Beasley. The devout Christian and ally of disgraced former President Donald Trump has incorporated his personal faith into his public comments, blurring the lines between humanitarian assistance, religion, and politics in his role at the United Nations. Over the past six years, the European Union, weary of the financial and political costs of taking in immigrants from sub-Saharan Africa, has created a shadow immigration system that stops them before they reach Europe. According to a report in the New Yorker magazine, the EU has equipped and trained the Libyan Coast Guard, a quasi-military organization linked to militias in the country, to patrol the Mediterranean Sea, sabotaging humanitarian rescue operations, and capturing migrants. The migrants are then detained indefinitely in a network of profit-making prisons in Libya run by the militias. In 2015, the EU created the Emergency Trust Fund for Africa, which has spent nearly $6 billion. Proponents argue that the program offers aid money to developing countries, but critics say much of its work involves pressuring African nations to adopt tougher immigration restrictions and funding the agencies that enforce them. In September of this year, around 6,000 migrants were being held in prisons where international aid agencies have documented an array of abuses, 
including torture with electric shocks, children raped by guards, families extorted for ransom, and men and women sold into forced labor. While the EU denies any responsibility for the detention camps, it pays for the boats to capture the migrants, buses to bring them to prison, and the SUVs that hunt for migrants on land. Union elections at three Starbucks stores in the Buffalo, New York area, which employ 100 workers, has sent the Seattle coffee giant into hyperdrive to defeat the workers' union campaign. They've hired anti-union consultants, ordered mandatory meetings with baristas, and sent dozens of corporate executives to Buffalo, including former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, to pressure workers to vote against the union. Starbucks has never recognized a union in any of its 8,000 stores. Workers are being told that they'll lose valued Starbucks benefits if the union wins the election. For their part, the union, Starbucks Workers United, filed an unfair labor practice charge with the National Labor Relations Board in early November over the company's conduct during the union campaign, which included shutting down two stores and turning another location into a training center, all of which had scheduled a union vote. Other workers were transferred to different stores to disrupt voting units. Starbucks' aggressive anti-union campaign is predictable, given its corporate board of directors, which includes Mary Dillon, former CEO of Ulta Beauty and chairwoman of the Anti-Union Retail Industry Leaders Association. The American Prospect argued Starbucks should reverse course by embracing unionization, become a visionary leader in the food service industry while enhancing workforce stability, and attracting the loyalty of a younger customer base. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. On December 1st, the case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization was argued before the Supreme Court. At issue was the state of Mississippi's law, making abortions illegal after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Well before the 24 weeks, that's the standard of viability, which has been in effect since Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. Jackson Women's Health Organization is the only health center providing abortions in Mississippi. Representing the clinic was the Center for Reproductive Rights and the U.S. Solicitor General. Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization is considered the most consequential reproductive rights case since the Planned Parenthood v. Casey ruling in 1992, which upheld Roe v. Wade. The current case has generated a flood of amicus, or friend-of-the-court briefs, including from the American Bar Association, the American Medical Association, and leading economists and social scientists that supported the constitutionality of Roe v. Wade and described the harms that would result if it should be overturned. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Jenny Ma, senior attorney at the Center for Reproductive Rights, who was part of the litigation team representing Jackson Women's Health Organization in arguments before the Supreme Court. This law 
is a Mississippi 15-week ban on abortion, but focusing on just those facts, right, the 15-week and the Mississippi part is a mistake because Mississippi went to the court and asked the court to overrule Roe versus Wade entirely. Um, so in other words, they are asking that there be no right to abortion whatsoever. So Mississippi is asking the Supreme Court to just allow states to ban abortion entirely. And if the court upholds this law, it is overruling Roe and discarding the viability line, which I'm sure some of your listeners heard um, at the oral argument being discussed quite a bit and saying that it's okay to ban abortion prior to viability. And if that's the case, then there's no real um, dividing line um, where the states could stop if the court were to say that this law is constitutional. The only way it can do that is by overturning Roe versus Wade. The core holding of Roe and Casey, the right to abortion is defined as the right of every woman to make the decision for herself until viability. And viability medically is around 24 weeks. That line has not changed in decades. States can regulate abortion and you know, indeed they do. And that's why we were at the court so many times before. But the one thing that states cannot do is ban abortion prior to viability because that is an individual right that belongs to the person themselves rather than the government, right? So that's the one thing states can't do. And if the Supreme Court here says, yes, Mississippi can go ahead and do that, ban abortion prior to viability because they themselves admit that 15 weeks is nine weeks prior to viability, right? Two months prior to viability, then the court has overturned Roe. Jenny Ma, I know some states have passed so-called trigger laws, which will enable abortion bans to go into effect as soon as the Supreme Court upholds the Mississippi law, should it do so, while other states have enacted their own laws protecting the right to abortion, such as Connecticut, where I live. Can you talk about that? So that is a part of our work as well, um, to make proactive gains so that state legislatures actually protect the right to abortion. And that can be done in various ways. Um, Connecticut is one example. Um, Most recently in Virginia, we were able to knock down several medically unnecessary barriers. Um, So these are trap laws, targeted regulation of abortion providers that are just placing incredibly burdensome restrictions on abortion providers, targeting them specifically for um, these laws. And when presented with evidence, which there is so much both medically, sociologically, you know, we bring in economic experts, poverty experts, and so on, courts have deemed those laws to be unconstitutional. So that's one way for states to protect abortion restrictions. Another way is for state legislatures to pass laws that protect access to care, like in your state. And then finally, there are state constitutions. So the federal constitution is a floor, um, but not a ceiling. So certain states, um, and I'll just give your listeners the good news today, that Kansas, actually, their state constitution has protections for abortion that are above the federal constitution. And we actually were able to strike down several laws in the decision that was released today from Kansas state court. So there are several states, sometimes in the middle of the country, like Kansas and Iowa, but then there's proactive work that's being done in New York and Colorado and Virginia and Connecticut that is protective of abortion rights. How would a negative Supreme Court decision affect people's ability to get mifepristone? 
the abortion pill? So medication abortion is available through abortion providers. Um, and there are abortion providers right now in all 50 states. So medication abortion is available through various clinics. They are also available through mail order pharmacies through either the clinic or through another um, provider. And that is going to be specific by state regulations and rules because some states um, that are particularly anti-abortion have things like waiting periods or in-person requirements um, for bias counseling and state mandated information. So you would have to get to the clinic um, to access uh, medication abortion, but some states allow for more liberal laws in terms of mailing the medication abortion pill to their state. Would that change at all if the Supreme Court upholds the Mississippi law? So it would still be, um, in many ways, remain a state-by-state determination. That was Jenny Ma, senior attorney with the Center for Reproductive Rights. The case could be decided any time before the end of the court's current term in June. Learn more about the fight to protect reproductive rights by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Under the Trump regime, it was common for corporate executives, who were brought into government with myriad conflicts of interest, to propose profit-making schemes that would enrich themselves and their allies at the expense of the public. Such a plan was launched as an experiment within the popular traditional Medicare program, and to the dismay of many in the medical community, continues under the Biden administration. The program known as direct contracting shifts traditional Medicare system of direct reimbursements to health providers to instead paying something called direct contracting entities monthly, covering a specified portion of a patient's medical care. This system allows them to pocket the funding they don't spend on patient care that critics believe will incentivize private middlemen to withhold needed care to Medicare patients while increasing the cost to taxpayers. Healthcare observers warn that Medicare direct contracting, now operating 53 units in 38 states, Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico, could hand traditional Medicare over to Wall Street investors and other profit seekers, resulting in substandard care while raising Medicare's costs. Your reporter spoke with Kay Tillo, chair of the group Kentuckians for Single-Payer Healthcare, who discusses growing concern about direct contracting and efforts now underway to pressure President Biden and Congress to end the program. We're all aware, I think, that uh, Medicare is being slowly privatized by the private for-profit Medicare Advantage plans that are growing bigger and bigger. They now take up 42% of Medicare beneficiaries. But this is an even more sinister plan, this direct contracting entities, because it is the way that they have to get the people who have chosen traditional Medicare, the ones who didn't listen to the Joe Namath ads, the people who stayed with traditional public Medicare, and this program of direct contracting aligns them and puts them in without their consent into these direct contractors where they will then be subjected to the whims of these, all of which are for-profit entities. They are uh, hedge funds, venture capitalists, 
They are physician practices that are owned by private equity. They're insurance companies like Humana. And uh, people are aligned and put into them based upon their primary care physician. And if you go to a doctor who is in a direct contracting entity, you're in one. And the key thing that is happening is it changes the way your care is paid for so that instead of fee-for-service, your care is paid for on a capitated basis. That means that it changes the incentive from giving you more care to a higher profit when you are given less care. And that's basically what's happening now. There are 53 of these entities that are in a model plan that is underway, and it's, uh, I think, planned for six years. The really sinister thing is that if CMS, which is Medicare Administration, decides that they want to expand it to all of Medicare to everybody, they can do so without congressional approval. So that's a a little complicated, but it is basically private, for-profit entities taking over people who are in traditional Medicare. So basically, unless we stop it, it's going to destroy Medicare for all of us as a public program. Okay, I wanted to ask you, what's been the response of the Biden administration and congressional Democrats to opposition to this direct contracting model that's being experimented on in, as you said, 38 states? Well, you know, most people don't know about it. So there hasn't been an outcry, which I think there will be. I think as people learn about it, there will be an uproar, which is good, because that's the hope that we can stop it. But they haven't said anything. There was a letter written by four congresspersons. They were uh, Katie Porter, Mark Pocan, uh, that New Jersey, Pascrell, and Doggett from Texas. And those four people wrote a letter to the head of Health and Human Services, Becerra, and said that they, the things I've been saying, they're concerned about the direct contracting. It takes away, uh, puts seniors into this without their consent, and it subjects them to Medicare Advantage-like plans that won't look out for their health care and quality will go down. And, you know, Medicare Advantage is bilking the government out of billions of dollars, and we, we want it stopped. We want to freeze the program. And so when I listened to a webinar in September, which was several months after they had written the letter, they still, they still didn't get an answer from Becerra. So it's, it's like, you know, the Congress says, you know, hey, stop this. This is terrible. And there's silence from the head of Health and Human Services. So... Um, That's one reason why people are now trying to call their congresspersons as a campaign to petition Becerra. You know, there was a group that went to Washington uh, 
headed by Physicians for a National Health Program. They were there November 30, and they took 13,000 petitions in to present to Becerra. They couldn't get in, and they couldn't even get anybody to take the petitions. So uh, that's why the battle is on. And uh, so far as I know, Biden hasn't made a statement about it at all. I mean, uh, there hasn't been uh, any real congressional concern expressed for what could really undermine what I think is our best public health care program, because Medicare, you know, did work to cover everybody, at least everybody over 65, and, uh, you know, to provide care. There's a choice of physician, you know, unlike the privatized plans where, you know, the network is narrow, you can't go to this hospital, you can't go to that doctor, you know, all of those things that are put in the path of people really being able to get care. That was Kay Tillo, chair of the group Kentuckians for Single-Payer Health Care. Learn more about the direct contracting model that threatens the future privatization of Medicare by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In national elections on November 28th, Honduran voters elected their first woman president and ousted the National Party, which has held power in the turbulent and impoverished Central American nation for the past 12 years. Victorious candidate Chamorro Castro of the Libre Party will return to the office of president 12 years after her husband, Manuel Zelaya, was overthrown in a U.S.-backed coup in 2009. Outgoing National Party President Juan Orlando Hernandez and his right-wing regime were deeply unpopular and dogged by allegations of corruption and implicated in a narco-trafficking case in the U.S. Castro and her new administration will face major challenges in Honduras, where unemployment, crime, corruption, and violent drug gangs have led many in her country to migrate to the U.S. President-elect Castro who will take office on January 27th next year, has proposed establishing an anti-corruption commission backed by the UN, wants to update the Honduran constitution, and suggested easing the country's law that prohibits all abortions. Your reporter spoke with Suyapa Portillo Vieda, associate professor of Chicanics, Latinx, and transnational studies at Pitzer College. Here she talks about the groundbreaking nature of Castro's victory and the many challenges she'll face after taking office. Why it's significant, uh, first, is the first woman elected in the history of Honduras and in the history of the region, who is the first woman who's a progressive, right? She uh, believes in participatory democracy. Um, you know, she's very open about her leftist politics. And she does inherit, right, from the post-2009 coup d'etat, the you know, the history of not just the coup, but the resistance to the coup. I mean, she went out into the streets to protest with people when her husband was ousted as well. Um, And the other significant moment is, for most of Hondurans, is to vote against uh, the Nationalist Party and Juan Orlando Hernandez, who has been backed by the United States. 
they found him corrupt. They find him uh, to have promised and promised and never delivered to the people things like mobile hospitals during COVID. You know, he stole from the Social Security Administration. And amidst a lot of um, allegations of narco-trafficking, his brother was prosecuted in New York. And so 100 people voted to say enough is enough. Also, the Juan Orlando Hernandez administration is persecuting land and water defenders, such as the case of um, eight men who were trying to protect the Wapinol River. You know, there's persecution of other work, um, campesinos and farm workers who are trying to protect the rivers and the waters. Juan Orlando Hernandez, in September 15, 2021, which marked the 200th anniversary of independence from Spain, actually said to, you know, national TV that land and water defenders, feminists who are fighting for women's rights to choose, as well as LGBT activists are enemies of independence, right? So he had set up this um, dichotomy and was persecuting anybody who would protest. Professor Portillo, what are your expectations of the Biden administration and its policy toward President-elect Shamar Castro? And I say that in the context of decades upon decades of United States interference in Latin America and Central America in particular in terms of overthrowing governments as well as uh, overt and covert actions to change government policy across the hemisphere. And certainly we had the case in this 2009 coup d'etat where the Obama administration and then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton were really at the forefront of smoothing the way for that coup d'etat to succeed and be recognized around the world. What are your expectations of the Biden administration? You know, I actually think that after the president's brother was convicted in a New York court of narco-trafficking, over 200 kilos of cocaine to the United States, with the permission of the president and the apparatus of government, I don't think the U.S. can say anything. I mean, they supported this party. They supported the cheating and stealing in Honduran public offices, the destruction of the constitutional law of the Supreme Court. I really think that the Biden administration will let this play out, you know, and and we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But there's really no other option in Honduras at this point. Um, Do we continue to let the Nationalist Party, a crooked party, a corrupt party, to steal from Hondurans and continue to receive thousands of people at the U.S.-Mexico border? Or do will they try to work with someone that, that has a, a wide base? The other thing is that the wind was so overwhelming. How can these be unfair? Right? People did not protest. People went to vote, and they voted early in the morning, you know, by the thousands. So I think that those kinds of things would make it real. you know, the overwhelming lead that she has, the peaceful elections, and sort of the history of Juan Orlando Hernandez uh, are going to prevent the United States, at least for now, from uh, being forceful. They're going to have to accept this. That was Suyapa Portillo Vieda, Associate Professor of Chicanx, Latinx, and Transnational Studies at Pitzer College. Learn more about Chamorro Castro's victory in the Honduran election and her agenda for change by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WHYS in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, Pala Res Radio in Pala, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.